Lecture six of Six Lectures on Literature by C. H. Herford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Normality of Shakespeare, illustrated in his treatment of love and marriage. The English Association, pamphlets number forty seven, September nineteen twenty. The greater part of this paper was originally published for the Shakespeare Tercentenary, nineteen sixteen, in the Norwegian Review, Edda to which the writer's acknowledgments for permission to reprint are hereby tendered normality is a term which it may well seem the height of ineptitude to apply to a poet so profoundly original so entirely sui generis as shakespeare and certain senses of the word one dismisses as a matter of course from the outset to enter the shakespearean world is to see our life mirrored if we will but mirrored in a glass which reproduces what is ordinary and commonplace magically transformed into rare and ineffable beauty now that so far may be said of all poetic genius the poet does transform reality and opens the door into a magic world but the transformation may be of different kinds reality may be all but effaced as so often in shelley and the magic world be one into which we escape or reality may be so all but completely retained when we have followed the poet say crab through his open door that the place he has taken us to is hardly distinguishable from the place we have left somewhat as jowett said of his friend f d morris's description of the broad church heaven that it seemed to mean that to-morrow was going to be just like to-day and the next world exactly like this but suppose we find that the world which we enter by the open door while completely transformed by a magic yet more wonderful than shelley's is none the less with all its rarity and strangeness inexplicably familiar and more crowded with recognisable reality beyond comparison than crabs this paradox if such it be is presented by shakespeare more signally than by any other poet what then exactly is the source of this impression of familiarity of crowded reality that shakespeare gives i suggest two related but distinct points one the persons and plots of shakespeare however foreign to our experience however abnormal in sense are brought by the poetic speech in which they are conveyed insistently and continuously home to our experience we have never known hamlet or a story in the least like his but the play is proverbially full of quotations i e of sayings which the world has seized on as felicitous ways of expressing what is always happening to us all two but more than this and here i approach the point on which i propose to dwell to-day while shakespeare's persons and plots are in a sense foreign to us they yet when compared with those of almost any of his contemporaries avoid eccentric pathological or fantastic types and in this conform as marlowe or webster or even johnson do not to the broad highway of experience i would express this by saying that the shakespearean world is impressed as a whole by an unmistakable joy in healthy living that may perhaps seem as much a truism as his normality seemed a paradox but our loose talk of his universality would imply that he handled life in all aspects without reserve which is simply not the case 
and I am suggesting that his joy in healthy living had the effect of keeping his mature arts within the wide but definite limits beyond which lies the region of the pathological, the eccentric and the fantastic, while within these limits is the region of what may in contrast properly be called the healthy or the normal. I propose in what follows, with your permission, to illustrate this in a single section only of the vast Shakespearean field, Shakespeare's handling of the love relations between men and women, for here we have a well-defined matter, and one in which the characteristic I am dealing with can be set forth clearly within moderate limits of space. It is possible to gather from Shakespeare what he thought to be the conditions of healthy love. It is possible, further, to show, one, that this Shakespearean norm, as I shall call it, of love, prevails in his mature comedy and tragedy, two, that he did not reach it at once, but after experiments represented especially in the comedies of his immature period, three, that both in mature comedy and mature tragedy he occasionally admitted abnormal types and incidents for specifically dramatic purposes. I shall proceed to deal with these three points in succession. 1. The Shakespearean norm of love, thus understood, may be described somewhat as follows. Love is a passion, kindling heart, brain and senses alike, in natural and happy proportions. Ardent but not sensual, tender but not sentimental, pure but not ascetic, moral but not puritanic, joyous but not frivolous, mirthful and witty but not cynical. His lovers look forward to marriage as a matter of course, and they neither anticipate its rights nor turn their affections elsewhere. They commonly love at first sight and once and for all. Love relations which do not contemplate marriage are rare and subordinate to other dramatic purposes. Tragedy, like that of Gretchen, does not attract him. Romeo's amour with Rosalind is a mere foil to his greater passion. Cassio's with Bianca, merely a mesh in the network of Iago's intrigue. The course of love rarely runs smooth, but rival suitors proposed by parents are quietly resisted or merrily abused, never even by the gentlest accepted. Crude young girls like Hermia, delicate-minded women like Desdemona and Imogen, the rapturous Juliet and the homely Anne Page, the discreet Sylvia and the naive Miranda are all at one on this point, and they all carry the day. Dramatically powerful situations which arise from forced marriage, as when Ford's Penthea or Corneille's Chimene, Le Cid, is torn by the conflict between love and honour, lie, like this conflict in general, outside Shakespeare's chosen field. And with this security of possession goes a capacity for mirth and jest, not usual in the dramatic representation of passion. Rosalind is more intimately Shakespearean than Juliet. Married life, as Shakespeare habitually represents it, is the counterpart, mutatis mutandis, of his representation of unmarried lovers. His husbands and wives have less of youthful abandon, they rarely speak of love, and still more rarely with lyric ardour or coruscations of poetic wit, but they are no less true. The immense field of dramatic motives 
based on infringements of marriage, so fertile in the hands of his successors, and in most other schools of drama, did not attract Shakespeare, and he touched on it only occasionally, and for particular purposes. Heroines like Fletcher's Evadne, a maid's tragedy, who marries a nominal husband to screen her guilty relations with the king, or Webster's Vittoria Corombona, the white devil, who conspires with her lover to murder her husband, or Chapman's Tamira, Boussy d'Ambois, whose husband kills her lover in her chamber, are definitely unshakespearean. The Shakespearean norm of love, thus understood, lent itself both to comic and to tragic situations, but only within somewhat narrow limits. The richness, depth, and constancy of the passion excluded a whole world of comic effects, abundantly exploited both before and after him by others. The comedy of the coquette and the prude, of affected love and worldly love, of the calf-lover and the doting husband, the comedy of clashing or subtly discordant ideals or temperaments in love. Here and there, in this field, Shakespeare made a brilliant incursion, but he never occupied it, and to large parts of it his art remained strange. We have only to recall, among a crowd of other examples, Moreto's Diana, El Destein con El Destein, Moliere's Alceste and Selimen, Congreve's Milliment, The Way of the World, Johnson's Humorous Gallants, in Shakespeare's century, or in ours, a long line of figures from Jane Austen to Meredith, and Ibsen's Love's Comedy, to recognise that Shakespeare, with all the beauty, wit and charm of his work, touched and could touch only the fringes of the comedy of love. If he did not view women with the shy chivalry, which in his portrayal of them so seriously limited the rich humour of Scott, he shows something of the same reluctance to make them the butts of ridicule. Moreover, his very conception of feminine character, exquisitely true and clear as it is, was too simple, easy to admit the anomalies and inconsistencies from which the finer kind of comic situation arises. His women have in the highest degree the feminine accent, but they give little clue in comparison with his men to the qualities on which satire in all ages has fastened. The normal love, not being itself ridiculous, could thus yield material for the comic spirit only in one of two ways, by a comic situation or by the wit and humour of the lovers themselves. Some of them, like Rosalind and Beatrice, virtually create and sustain the wit-fraught atmosphere of the play single-handed, but Shakespeare habitually heightens this source of fun by some piquancy of situation, almost always one arising from delusion, particularly through confusion of identity. It is a mark of the easy-going habits of his art in comedy, that he never threw aside this rather elementary device, though subjecting it, no doubt, to successive refinements, which become palpable enough when we pass from the two gentlemen to Cymbeline. But his genius made perennially delightful even those crude forms of confusion which create grotesque infatuations, like those of Titania, Malvolio, Phoebe, Olivia. More refined and yet more delightful are the confusions which bring true and destined lovers together, like the arch make-believe courtship 
with which Rosalind's wit amuses and consoles her womanhood, and that other which liberates the natural congeniality of Beatrice and Benedict from their merry war. In cases like these, Shakespeare's humour has the richer and finer effluence which derives from a hidden ground of passion or tears. Rosalind's wit is that of a woman many fathoms deep in love. Beatrice's ears tingle with remorse at the tale of Benedict's secret attachment. Viola's gallant bravado to Olivia conceals her own unspoken maiden love, and Portia crowns her homecoming to her husband and her splendid service to his friend with the madcap jest of all the rings. Such jesting is, in Shakespeare, a part of the language of love, and, like its serious or lyrical speech, is addressed with predilection to love's object. On the other hand, the delusion, instead of deftly entangling the lovers, may violently thrust them apart. The blindness of Claudio, of Othello, of Posthumus, of Leontes, shatters a unity of hearts, till then, so far as we see, complete, with consequences to the slandered maid or wife, and finally to the lover or husband, in various degrees disastrous and pathetic. It is from this situation, most often, that Shakespeare evolves the tragedy of his ideal love, as from the happier, gayer kind of delusion his comedy. The situation clearly appealed strongly to him, and he made it his own. Even after leaving the stage, he was allured by the likeness of the story of Henry VIII's slandered queen to his Hermione, to reopen the magic book he had drowned. We can hardly dissociate Shakespeare's repeated recurrence to it from the peculiar poignancy and delicacy of his portrayal of innocent, heart-stricken womanhood. He was no sentimentalist. His pathos is never morbid. But it is in imagining souls of texture fine and pure enough to be wrought upon to the most piteous extreme by slander from the man they love, that Shakespeare found most of his loveliest, yet most authentically Shakespearean characters of women. Hermione and Hero, Desdemona and Imogen, are to his graver art what Rosalind and Beatrice and Portia are to his comedy. In one drama only did he represent ideal love brought to a tragic doom, without a hint of inner severance. The wedded unity of Romeo and Juliet is absolute from their first meeting to their last embrace. It encounters only the blind onset of outer and irrelevant events. Nothing touches their rapturous faith in one another. This earliest of the authentic tragedies thus represents, in comparison with its successors, only an elementary order of tragic experience. Set beside Othello, it appears to be not a tragedy of love, but love's triumphal hymn. Yet it is only in this sense immature. If Shakespeare had not yet fathomed the depths of human misery, he understood completely the exaltation of passion, and Romeo and Juliet, though it gives few glimpses beyond the horizons of his early world, remains the consummate flower of his poetry of ideal love. 2. Love in the Immature Comedies, Pre-Normal The beauty and insight of Shakespeare's finest portrayals of the comedy and the tragedy of love were not reached at once. His conception of love itself was still, at the opening of his career, slight and superficial. 
his mastery of technique was equally incomplete the early plays accordingly abound with scenes and situations which from either cause or from both are not in the full sense shakespearean it will suffice in this sketch to specify two types of each the young shakespeare as is well known showed a marked leaning to two apparently incongruous kinds of dramatic device paradox and symmetry in the riotous consciousness of power he loved to confront himself with the challenge of outrageous situations to set himself dramaturgical problems which he solves by compelling us to admit that the impossible might have happened in the way he shows a shrew to be tamed into a model wife a widow following her murdered father's coffin to be wooed there and then and won by his murderer a girl of humble birth in love with a young noble who scorns her to set herself notwithstanding to win him and to succeed paradoxical feats like these were foreign to the profound normality under whatever romantic disguise of shakespeare's mature art richard and petruchio and helen carry into the problems of love-making the enterprising audacity of the young shakespeare in the problem of art but the audacity of the young shakespeare showed itself in another way his so-called taste for symmetry had nothing in common with the classical canons of balance and order it was nearer akin to the boyish humour of mimicry if he found a pair of indistinguishable twins producing amusing confusion in a roman play he capped them with a second pair to produce confusion worse confounded in the english comedy of errors and so with love navarre in love's labours lost and his three lords like the four horses of an antique quadriga go through the same adventure side by side all four have forsworn the sight of women all four fall in love not promiscuously but in order of rank with the french princess and her ladies whose numbers by good fortune precisely go round but love itself is not as yet drawn with any power Baron's magnificent account of its attributes and effects is not borne out by any representation of it in the play the taffeta phrases and silken terms precise the pointed sallies and punning repartees full of a hard crackling gaiety neither express passion nor suggest like the joyous quips of the later rosalind that passion is lurking behind we are spectators of a rather protracted flirtation a way of love which was to occupy a minimal place in his later drama kindred to this and equally immature is the representation of fickle love in the two gentlemen proteus is shakespeare's only essay in don juan type but it falls far short in psychological and dramatic force of his portrait of the faithful julia proteus's speeches are often rhetorical analyses of his situation rather than dramatic expressions of it his threat to outrage sylvia is as he naively declares against the nature of love and thus an isolated anomaly in shakespeare's rendering of the passion even the apparent fickleness produced by delusion flourishes only in the magical world of the young shakespeare's midsummer dream no doubt shakespeare's denouements even in some of the maturest comedies 
show his lovers accepting with a singular facility a fate in love other than that they had chosen olivia accepts sebastian in default of viola and the duke viola when olivia is out of the question but these acquiescences even if they were not touched with the frequent perfunctoriness of shakespeare's finales are not to be classed with deliberate inconstancy a second mark of unripeness in the conception of love is extravagant magnanimity this like other kinds of unnatural virtue was a part of the heritage for medieval romance fortified with roman legend the classical exaltation of friendship concurred with the germanic absoluteness of faithful devotion and for the medieval mind the most convincing way of attesting this was by the surrender of a mistress in the tenth book of the decamarone boccaccio collects the most admired examples of things done generously and magnificently chiefly in matters of love one of them is the tale of tito and gisippo where tito having fallen in love with his friend's bride gisippo generously resigns to him all but the name of husband the story quoted in sir t eliot's governor fifteen thirty one was well known in elizabethan england and fell in with the fantastical world of fletcher's romanticism but the humanity and veracity of the mature shakespeare rejected these extravagances as the cognate genius of the mature chaucer had done before him chaucer lived to mock at the legendary magnanimity of griselda so devoutly related in the clerk's tale and it was only the young shakespeare who could have let valentine make his astounding offer in the two gentlemen to resign all his rights in his bride to the friend from whose offer of violence he has only a moment before rescued her Footnote. the conflict of friendship with love was in general treated in england with a livelier sense of the power of love than in italy boccaccio's palemone and Archita, rivals for the hand of emilia courteously debate their claims chaucer makes them fight in grim earnest spencer in the spirit of the renaissance makes friendship an ideal virtue but exposes it to more legitimate trials as where the squire of low degree repels the proffered favours of his friend's bride and footnote a second variety of extravagant magnanimity was the familiar situation of the girl who deserted by her lover follows him in disguise takes service as his page and in that capacity is employed by him to further his suit to a new mistress this motive was of the purest romantic lineage having first won vogue in europe through montemayor's diana and in england by sydney's arcadia on the london stage it profited by the special piquancy attaching to the roles of girls in masculine disguise when the actors were boys and its blend of audacious adventure and devoted self-sacrifice gave the elizabethan auditor precisely the kind of composite thrill he loved for some forms of sex confusion shakespeare throughout his career retained an unmistakable liking but the finer instincts of his ripening art gradually restricted its scope viola in the original story bandello follows a faithless lover in twelfth night wrecked on the illyrian coast she disguises herself merely for safety takes service with the duke as a complete stranger 
and only subsequently falls in love with him. The change indicates with precision Shakespeare's attitude at this date, circa 1600, to this type of situation. He was still quite ready to exploit the rather elementary comedy arising out of sex confusion, to paint with gusto Viola's embarrassments as the object of Olivia's passion and Sir Andrew's challenge, or the brilliant pranks of Rosalind in a like position. But he would not now approach these situations by the romantic avenue of a love-sick woman's pursuit. In his latest plays, he shows disrelish, even for the delightful fun, evolved from sex confusion, in Twelfth Night and As You Like It. The adventures of Imogen in disguise are purely pathetic. Pisanio indeed proposes, and Imogen agrees, to follow her husband to Italy in disguise, but this opening is significantly not followed up. But in The Two Gentlemen, the entire motive without curtailment or qualification is presented in the adventures of Julia. Abandoned by Proteus, she follows him in disguise, takes service as his page, and is employed as a go-between in his new courtship of Sylvia. To the young Shakespeare, the situation was still wholly congenial, and he availed himself of its opportunities of pathos without reserve, though with incomplete power. His riper technique, fortified probably by a closer acquaintance with the spirited and high-bred womanhood of the Portia's and Rosalind's of his time, withdrew his interest, perhaps his belief, from the risky psychology of Julia's self-assertion and self-abnegation. Like other strange situations caused by the golden-tongued romance, it fell away before the consolidated experience, the genial worldliness, the poetised normality of his riper art. 3. Love Outside the Norm A. In Comedy what I have called the ideal norm of love must thus rank high among the determining and creative forces of his drama. Obscured and disguised at the outset by crude conceptions and immature technique, it gradually grew clear and provided the background of passion, faith and truth, out of which, aided by misunderstandings, pleasant or grave, his most delightful comedy and his most poignant tragedy were evolved and other types of love, whether they made for comedy or for tragedy, held a relatively slight place in his work, but he uses them on occasion, as I have finally to show, when some independent dramatic purpose demands. His comedy of love, outside the norm, for the most part approaches burlesque. Shakespearean burlesque, indeed, penetrated with poetry, human nature and good humour, but still provoking the loud laugh more often than the slim feasting smile. It is crudest where, as in Pyramus and Thisbe, the players are to be laughed at as well as the piece, or where, as in the play in Hamlet, an unreal type of love is deliberately intended. Akin to this is the merry parody of the artifices of literary pastoral in the despair of Silvius and Phoebe, as you like it, a picture not much truer to actual love-making than the wit-combats of love's labours lost, but differing from this, as does the master's parody from the disciple's amused but admiring imitation. The altercations of Oberon and Titania 
have a like literary root in the romance of fairy but they are touched also for shakespeare with the poetry of folklore and the satire upon humans remains only as a delicate thread in a lovely imaginative creation in bottom and titania human grossness and fairy fantasticality are brought together for the eternal joy of gods and men the play in which shakespearean parody of love more especially runs riot is twelfth night it bears many traces of the influence of johnson's humour comedy viola's maiden passion alone is reverently and tenderly touched even the shrewd and discreet olivia who wins our respect by her dignified attitude to the duke's importunity is herself caught by a most extracting frenzy and does not escape the suspicion of ridicule which belongs to those who blunder in love the duke is a subtly humorous study of a way of love very unlike that of shakespeare's ideal lovers the self-pleasing luxury of an artist in emotion and a child in will who feeds his passion on music and who does his wooing by attorney the duke and his vain courtship are taken in outline from the original story shakespeare's brilliant humour has enriched this gallery of futile love-making with two other immortal figures malvolio courting his lady with smiles and yellow stockings and sir andrew who gets no further than learning an assortment of fine words for an interview that never comes off a comic counterpart to iago's miserable dupe rodrigo the merry wives also shows the influence of the humour comedy slender is a true country gull nowhere more obviously than in his wooing or preparations to woo sweet and page the adventures of falstaff in pursuit of mrs ford and mrs page are brilliantly executed examples of a kind of comic effect which shakespeare's riper arts habitually disdained the queen according to accepted tradition had commanded him to represent falstaff in love he responded by this good-humoured wholesome inversion of the italian novel of intrigue where the knightly lover has as little to do with love as he has with the true and genuine Falstaff of East Cheap. 4. B. In Tragedy Finally, as Shakespeare recognised, for purposes of comedy, certain types of love-making alien to the ideal norm, so too, more rarely, for the purposes of tragedy. Ideal love, as has been seen, occurs constantly in the tragedies, even where it does not directly affect or participate in the tragic issues as with france and cordelia brutus and portia richard the second and his queen coriolanus and virgilia it may even subtly contribute like the innocent boldness of desdemona to draw closer the entangling threads but the more penetrating sense of evil which becomes apparent in his tragic period contributed to draw into the sphere of his art more prominently the disastrous aspects of the relations between men and women that he refrained from exploiting in drama the more sinister forms of love we have seen but in some of his ripest and greatest work he resorted to types clearly marked off from the norm now by frail instability now by lawless violence and not merely admitting a tragic issue imposed from without but directly breeding and evolving it from within love like everything else which grows in hamlet's denmark 
is touched with insidious disease. Ophelia is wonderfully imagined in keeping with the tragic atmosphere, an exquisite but fragile flower of the unweeded garden, where evil things run to seed, and good things wither, and her love, wholly un-Shakespearean as it is, and therefore irritating to many readers, bears within it the seed of tragedy, both for Hamlet and herself. It is a power girt round with weakness. She never falters in faithful devotion to him, but the sweet bells her father has told her are jangled, and she consents both to be the instrument of the king and Polonius's lawful espial, which may, please heaven, restore him, and to deny Hamlet access and return his gifts. She stands alone among Shakespearean heroines in renouncing her love at a father's bidding. We seem to approach, for once, the heroic renunciations of love in the name of principle or country, which impress us in Corneille and Racine, in Polyeucte and Berenice. But no halo of sublime self-sacrifice surrounds Ophelia's renunciation, for her or for us. It is merely a piteous surrender, which breaks her heart, overthrows her delicately poised reason, and removes one of the last supports of Hamlet's trusting goodness. On the other hand, Shakespeare occasionally found his tragic love in violent and lawless passion. We need not dwell on episodic incidents like the rivalry in the love of Edmund, which crowns and closes the criminal careers of Goneril and Regan. In this case, there was little scope for the undoing of soul, which is the habitual theme of Shakespearean tragedy. But in measure for measure, an inrush of sensual passion instantly shatters the imposing but loosely built edifice of Angelo's morality, and though the play was meant for comedy, and the tragic point is thus, rather clumsily, blunted or broken off, the spiritual undoing of him is discernible enough. Without a thought of resistance, he proceeds to act out the whole merciless catalogue of vices which the poet of the 129th sonnet saw attending upon lust. At the same time, it is clear that Isabel, with her cold austerity, is an even greater anomaly among Shakespeare's women. Their purity is not that of a negative abstinence, but of whole-hearted devotion to the man they love. In Cressida, he drew a kind of tragic love, as lawless as Angelo's and as sensual, but insidious and seductive instead of violent. Compared with the profligate women of Restoration comedy, she has a certain girlish air of grace and innocence. If she betrays Troilus for Diomede, it is with a sigh and a half-wistful glance back at the deserted lover. Troilus, farewell! One eye yet looks on thee! Though classed by the folio editors, hesitatingly it would seem, with the tragedies, this play seems to set at naught the whole scheme of Shakespearean tragedy. Neither Troilus nor Cressida has the grandeur without which ruin is not sublime, and their love has not the heroic intensity of those, like Heine's Asra, welche sterben, wenn sie lieben. The only imposing figures are those of the great captains of the Greek and Trojan camps, who are but slightly concerned with their love. Nevertheless, the whole effect of the play is tragic, or falls short of tragedy only because the gloom is more unrelieved. There are no colossal disasters, plots, crimes, or suffering. 
nor yet the stormy splendour which agony beats out of the souls of othello hamlet antony or lear and which leaves us at the close rather exultant than depressed this tragedy is purely depressing because it strikes less deep the harms do not rend and shatter but secretly undermine and insidiously frustrate cressida is the symbol of the love which may kindle valour for a moment but in the end saps heroism and romance at once and which strikes the magnificent champions of homeric story themselves with a futility more tragic than death the futility hinted savagely in the horatian troiani cunus teteriba belli causa and superbly in faustus's great apologue to the face that launched the thousand ships in antony and cleopatra on the other hand a type of love not in its origin loftier or purer than that of troilus and cressida is seen dominating two souls of magnificent compass and demonic force antony is held by his serpent of old nile in the grip of a passion which insolently tramples on moral and institutional bonds private and public alike which brings them to ruin and to death and which yet invests their fall with a splendour beside which the triumph of their conqueror appears cold and mean there is no conflict no weighing of love and empire as great alternatives against each other in the manner of corneille nor does shakespeare take sides with either he neither reprobates antony like plutarch for sacrificing duty to love nor glorifies him like the author of the restoration drama all for love or the world well lost still less does he seek to strike a balance between these views he is no ethical theorist trying exactly to measure right or wrong but a great poet whose comprehensive soul had room together for many kinds of excellence incompatible in the experience of ordinary men that antony's passion for cleopatra not only ruins his colossal power in the state but saps his mental and moral strength is made as mercilessly clear in shakespeare as in plutarch he is the noble ruin of her magic but it is equally clear that this passion enlarges and enriches his emotional life in a sense other than that intended by the sober enobarbus a diminution in our captain's brain restores his heart and enlarged feeling opens up new regions of imagination and lifts him to unapproached heights of poetry as in the unarming scene with eros and the farewell speeches to cleopatra i am dying egypt dying and cleopatra too in the infinite variety of her moods has moments of self-forgetting devotion of which she was before incapable moments only it is true the egoist the actress the coquette are only fitfully overcome in her dying speech itself the accent of them all is heard the baser elements are not expelled but the nobler fire and air to which she dreams that she is resolved triumph for an instant in her cry husband i come love is for shakespeare a spirit so pervasive and manifold with the swift motion of all elements coursing as swift as thought in every power that even its most tragic and ruinous passion may touch the spring of self-forgetful devotion shakespeare's poetry takes account of so vast a number of other things 
of so many other ways of living and aspects of life that we hardly think even of the author of romeo and juliet as in any special sense the poet of love nor is he if we mean by that that he thinks or speaks of love in the transcendent way of dante or lucretius or spencer or shelley love with them is part of the vital frame of the universe lucretius in spite of his atomist creed saw it pervading all that moves below the gliding stars the sea and its ships the earth and its flocks and flowers dante saw it as the force which not only draws men and women together but moves the sun and the other stars spencer saw it as the lord of all the world by right that rules all creatures by his powerful saw shelley saw it as the sustaining force blindly woven through the web of beings for such heights of poetic metaphysic we do not look in shakespeare he is one of the greatest of poets yet his poetry is woven of no tissue of myth and dream its staple is the humanity we know its basis the ground we tread what we call the prose world far from being excluded is genially taken in and more alive than ever and shakespeare's most thrilling and splendid utterance about love love is not love which alters when its alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove only expresses with lyric entrain the ideal of love relations between men and women which we have seen to dominate his drama and which illustrates the lofty normality i have ascribed to his art end of lecture six end of six lectures on literature by c h hereford read by phil benson in sydney australia